Mark, Mark chapter 4, end of Mark chapter 4. And what I've done is I've, I've picked three passages in the Gospel of Mark that I find are kind of odd, a little bit difficult to understand, and uh, some people helped me understand them, so I thought I might pass that on. So do you remember how when, when John ends his Gospel, he said, Many other signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded here. Do you remember this statement? It's in the end of John chapter 20. Many other things Jesus did that are not recorded here. That tells us that John's not telling us all he knows. Right? He's being selective. He's not telling us all. There's more I know that I'm not telling you, John says. Many other things I could have written, but I didn't. So if we assume that Matthew, Mark, and Luke also had that same freedom to kind of pick and choose from the life of Jesus what they thought would be most helpful to their original readers, then I think that's a safe assumption. Okay. Uh, so what we want to ask and when we read the Gospels is why did this Gospel writer include what he included? And so uh, I think this is interesting. I'm not Mark meant this, but look at the end of what we call Mark chapter 4. It ends with a story about Jesus uh, calming the sea. Uh, he's on in a boat with the disciples. There's a storm at sea, do you remember? And the disciples are frightened. And Jesus is doing what? Do you remember? This is one of my favorite stories. Jesus is taking a nap. Jesus, you know, we got to follow Jesus, right? So bring on the naps. But um, He's there on the boat, and there's a furious squall comes up. The disciples are panicked. They think they're in real danger. And they say, Jesus, get up. Won't you help us? And so Jesus gets up, and he speaks to the storm, of course, and calms it. The waves return to calm. And then the disciples are not afraid of the storm anymore, but they're still afraid. Uh, look at this in um, verse 40. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Look in verse 41. They were terrified. The storm's been dealt with, and they're still afraid. What are they afraid of? Because they don't know what to make of Jesus, right? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Who are we dealing with here that even storms do what he says? End of story, right? The very next story uh, is a very similar story in some ways, because if you look at the pattern, there's uncontrollable situation, the storm, the people are afraid, Jesus deals with it, he restores calm, now the people are afraid of Jesus, and the story ends with a question, who is this? Which is actually, by the way, the question Mark is massaging all the way through his gospel, who is Jesus, right? The very next story that begins Mark 5 is a similar story in dynamics, all the details are different, but the dynamics are the same. We hear about this man who's living in the tombs. He's cutting himself. Uh, there's probably some psychological illness going on here. But uh, he's crying out night and day. No way you're going to sell estate in this, this neighborhood with that guy hollering like that all the time. And um, it says the people tried to chain him up, and he would break the chains. And, uh, and so um, they're all, af all afraid of him. So look with me here. Uh, Jesus shows up um, in verse 9 and uh, asked the man, what's his name? Uh, my name is Legion because we're many. And he begged Jesus again and again to send them, uh, not to send them out of the area. But there's the pigs. 
Jesus sends the spirits, the evil spirits, into the pigs. The pigs uh, run off the cliff uh, and, and drown uh, themselves. And then look at this. Verse uh, 15. Is that a five? Yeah, 15. When they came to Jesus, these are the, the townspeople, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. First they were afraid of the man, and now they're afraid of Jesus because they don't know who this is. And then, um, uh, of course, he, he asked to go with Jesus, and Jesus uh, sends him home to, to be a witness. But look, if you back up in verse 7, uh, the legion, the man with the legion of demons, when he sees Jesus coming, he runs to Jesus. In verse 7, he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? So what we have in, here in Mark's Gospel, just an example, I want to try to illustrate that the Gospels have a design to them. Sometimes it's not always obvious, but, but, but here we see two parallel stories. The details are different, but you've got an uncontrollable situation, a storm, and a man possessed by demons. The people are afraid. Uh, the disciples in this case, here the people are trying to control this town from the town, are trying to control this guy, and they can't. Jesus restores calm. That's clear. And now the people are afraid, but their fear, uh, the point of their fear, the source or the object of their fear is Jesus. And the first story ends by posing a question. Who is this? And the second story answers it. Through the mouth of this demon-possessed man, Jesus, I know who you are, son of the most high God. Kind of cool, right? So there's design in, in the Gospels. Now, um, we, the first thing that I wanted to point us to that's kind of puzzling, kind of funny, I think, is in Mark 14. What I'm looking at here are uh, passages in Mark that kind of are puzzling. Uh, so Mark 14 is the only Gospel that includes this little episode. It's the arrest scene Jesus is being arrested uh, in the garden and um, back up back up back up so verse 43 is where the arrest scene begins John or sorry mark 14 43 they're talking Judas walks up and um, he had arranged to kiss Jesus to signal that he was the one that the uh, uh, people who are arresting him want. So verse, uh, everybody runs away. Do you see it in verse 50? When they arrest Jesus, all the disciples, all the people around run away. See that? They all run away. But then verse 51, this is only Mark telling us this, that a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. So there are more people around than just the 11 apostles, right? There's this young man, he's wearing this linen garment and, and nothing else. And when they seized him, he fled, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. And you're kind of wondering, okay, how did that make it? You know what? You know, why that? I mean, if this is Jesus, you know, and he's being arrested. It's a crucial point in the story. And, oh, by the way, there's this naked guy running away. And, and what... Uh, Think because the earliest Christians in, that wrote, uh, besides uh, beyond the New Testament documents, second, third, fourth centuries, many of them said that uh, Mark, the writer of this gospel, was a disciple of Peter. It's almost like Mark had uh, an internship with the apostles and he was assigned to Peter uh, as his mentor. And so, more than one church father tells us that, that Mark was a disciple of Peter. 
And so that he got his information for his gospel from Peter, pretty good source, right? And so do you know Alfred Hitchcock movies? Do you know uh, what's, what's characteristic of Alfred Hitchcock movies? He's in them. He has a cameo appearance. So he might be just a cab driver. He never says anything. He's just a cab driver. But one of the things you do uh, when you look at a Hitchcock movie is you look for Alfred, right? Oh, there, was that him? You know, and, and he may just come in the room and dust the shelves, you know, where there's a conversation going on over here, but it's just kind of fun to do. You, you look for Alfred. He puts himself in his movies. And we think that's what Mark is doing. We think this young man is Mark. And that would kind of make sense, wouldn't it? That would be why he would include this, and he would know about this, right? It's a chaotic scene. Who would know that there's this young guy, all he's wearing is a linen garment, they grab him, he runs away naked. Who would know that, right? Very few probably. And we think that might be Mark. But these next two, I think, are more helpful. Um, Mark chapter 3, this passage is puzzling because it says something that we wish we all understood a little better. Mark chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. Verse 28 of Mark 3, I tell you the truth, all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. And we're like, oh, well, I don't want to do that. Wonder what that is. <laughs> what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, if you told me, Ross, you have to throw out all your Old Testament. You can only keep ten chapters of your Old Testament. I think one of the ones I would keep would be Numbers chapter 15. Would you look at Numbers chapter 15 with me? I think it explains what this what this means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Numbers 15, we're going to begin in verse 32. Uh, the scene here is the Israelites have left Egypt. They're down in the desert. They're on their way to Canaan, but they're going to wander around for 40 years because men won't stop and ask for directions. And there may have been other reasons as well, but uh, that's where they are. They're in the desert. And uh, verse 32 says... <clears throat> While the Israelites were in the desert, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Now, why would you gather wood in the desert? What would you do with it? Build a fire, probably, right? To probably cook, maybe keep warm. If the temperatures drop in the desert like they do around this desert, right? It gets a little cool sometimes. And so uh, probably a good purpose. Maybe he's going to keep his kids warm or feed them. So he's gathering wood, but what's the problem? It's a Sabbath day, right? Not supposed to do that. Uh, those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron in the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody because it wasn't clear what should happen. They weren't sure what to do. This guy's gathering wood on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath, and so not supposed to work on the Sabbath. What are we supposed to do? Well, the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. I'm thinking, whoa. That seems a little over the top. Seems a little harsh. This is the God I was just praising a minute ago. This God, guy's out gathering firewood to feed his family, and God's going to have him killed. The man must die, so the whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So that's what they do. 
They took him outside the camp and stoned him to death. I'm like, oh man, this makes me troubled. But there's a context that I think makes it pretty clear. Back up to verse 22. If you unintentionally fail to keep one of these commandments the Lord gave Moses, any of the Lord's commands, doesn't matter which one it is, and this is done unintentionally, verse 24, without the community being aware of it. So this is talking about the whole group, the community, and they've done something that uh, our Bible's called unintentional sin here, right? So what they're told to do is to offer a particular sacrifice. So here it is. Uh, they're to offer a young bull and a grain offering and a drink offering and a male goat. The priest, verse 25, the priest is to make atonement for the whole Israelite community and they will be forgiven, right? They will be forgiven. They will feel forgiven. Uh, we know that what forgives our sins? Jesus on the cross, right? And I think what's happening is that um, we believe, as, as Hebrews teaches us, that all the sins of all people of all time are paid for by Jesus. And um, I think what's happening here, these sins get charged to like a credit, credit account, right? That gets paid off uh, when uh, Jesus is crucified. But the people get to take home forgiveness, right? And this is... Uh, because the people are involved in an unintentional wrong. Well, that's what that paragraph is. 22 through 26 says the community's done something unintentionally, and here's what there's to do about it. And they'll be forgiven. The priest will help them. They'll offer sacrifice. They'll be forgiven. Now look in verse 27. But if just one person, so the shift is from the community to an individual, if just one person sins unintentionally, he must offer a male goat, or rather a year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest will help them, and they will be forgiven. Right? He'll be forgiven. And then verse 30. But, but, anyone who sins defiantly, what does that mean? Defiance is when I say, I will not do what you've asked me to do. We're seeing it in lots of different ways in our country today. Nobody can tell me what to do. I have the freedom to do what I choose my own way, and I'm not going to do X, whatever it is, right? But this person sins defiantly. He blasphemes the Lord. That person must be cut off from the people. And broken his commandments. So about four or five different ways it says, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, this is really bad. That person must be what remains on him. No forgiveness. Well, what's different from the first two than this one? This is defiant sin. So our options are, this guy's out, he wakes up Saturday morning, his name's Joseph. He wakes up, he comes out of his tent, he stretches... He yawns, and he starts picking up firewood. And his friends go, jo Joseph, what are you doing, man? He goes, duh. What do you look like I'm doing? I'm picking up firewood. I know, but Joseph, it's the Sabbath. He's a Sabbath schmabbath. I just didn't to do this yesterday. Eh? Now, that's one option. The other option is he doesn't know what day it is. Oh, really? 
He's surrounded by several hundred thousand persons who observe the Sabbath, and they begin observing that Sabbath last night at, at dusk. I think the chances that he's forgotten what day. So that would be problematic, right? The guy gets up. Joseph, he's picking up firewood. His friends say, Joseph, what are you doing, man? Duh, I'm picking up firewood, but it's a Sabbath. He goes, oh, no, I forgot. And God says, too bad. Because you have a bad memory, you must die. The other option would explain the context, right? So this person must be surely cut off. There is no forgiveness for defiant sin. And the very next thing we read, there was a man found gathering wood on the Sabbath. Verse 32 through 36, the story about this man gathering wood, is an illustration of defiant sin. Okay? And the language is used that this is blasphemy. That's what it is. So we go back to, if we, and you've got two or three other places that speak of sin that isn't forgiven. The end of 1 John says there's a sin that leads to death. And there's a sin that does not lead to death. Right? Uh, you also have a reference in Hebrews that could be uh, talking about this in Hebrews 6 and in Hebrews 10. But uh, three or four or five places you've got a distinction between sin that's forgiven and sin that isn't. And uh, it seems to me that we ought to look at all those things together when they make that kind of distinction. And so it seems to me that Mark chapter 3, when Jesus speaks of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it's when our hearts are so stubborn that we say, I'm going to do what I want to do. You know, you, you probably heard somebody say this, that we're, we're all happy for Jesus to be our Savior. We're less inclined for Jesus to be our Lord, where he gets to say. He gets to say how we live. I was in a conversation a couple of years ago with a, a man in my church, and we were talking about, we sometimes at our church, back in the old days, pre-B.C., before COVID, uh, we, we would take the Lord's Supper by coming to tables. You know, we were, we, it's, we're a big church, and it's very awkward, inconvenient, and not very efficient. But we're, we're trying to get in the spirit that, that the Lord's Supper is as much about our interacting with each other and things we say to each other as it is things we say to Christ, right? I'm always puzzled uh, when people are insistent that we do what the early church does when it comes to, like, whether or not we sing with an instrument. But when we point out that there's more scripture about taking the Lord's Supper as a meal than there's anything about our singing, we, we seem to, you know, it, it's kind of funny. We come to scripture oftentimes when we read it and we go, good news, everybody. I've read the Bible from cover to cover and we don't have to change a thing. It, 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 it exactly matches what we already think and do. You know? But um, he said, well, I'm just not comfortable. We are talking about this practice. We call it come to the table. He said, I'm just not comfortable with that. And I couldn't help myself. I said, what has your comfort got to do anything? I said, if you're uncomfortable with that, just wait till you hear what Jesus is going to ask you to do. You know? And um, our personal comfort, our personal preferences really should all be subsumed under what is it that God wants from our lives. And so I think what Matthew, or sorry, Mark is talking about, Jesus is talking about in Mark 3 about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, seems pretty close to what Numbers 15 says about blasphemy, right? It's defiant. Sin. Whoever sins defiantly blasphemes. Uh, and so it's not, it's not a particular thing you do. 
that we might do, it's, it's a, a, a spirit we have. So I might say it like this. The guy in Numbers 15, he wasn't stoned to death because of what, he was, what was in his arms. He was stoned to death because of what was in his heart. I don't have to do what the Lord God Almighty has asked me to do. That's defiance. That's, that's blasphemy. This one I'm most excited about. Go to Mark chapter 6. Actually, go to Mark chapter 8 and let's wave at it and then we'll back up and make sense of it. So Mark chapter 8, this is a story. This is the story where Jesus heals a blind man, but he has to touch his eyes twice. Do you know this story? That sound familiar? Jesus, he touches the blind man's eyes and it doesn't work. I mean, all the other times we see Jesus healing people, it's instant. They were lame, now they can walk. Uh, they couldn't hear, now they can. They couldn't see, now they can. But in this case, uh, he, he touches a guy and it, it, it's, you know, it's not 20-20 yet. You know? The guy says, well, I kind of see, but it's kind of blurry. You know? And so Jesus has to touch him again and we're like, what happened? Does that, does that puzzle you? It's puzzling to me, right? Yeah. So uh, let's look here. So that's in Mark 8. We'll get to that in a second. So Mark 6, here's what's happening. Mark 6, verse 30, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Right? Uh, the people are there. They're in a remote place. The disciples go, Jesus, you know, we got to. Uh, the way I think it happened is, you know, Jesus is speaking away and it says he has compassion on them. So begin to teach them many things, which is not how most my students think is a compassionate act, you know. And so they're there for a while and uh, Peter starts to hear, you know, the people, I mean, I'm, I'm getting hungry. You know, <laughs> maybe his own stomach is a little growling and something. And so he points to his wrist sundial and says, Jesus, look, it's lunchtime, you know. Enough already. Let these people go and get some, some, something to eat. And Jesus says, why don't you feed them? And they go, well, we thought about that, of course. But we don't have enough money. Judas, how much money do we have? Okay. Wait a minute. That's less than we had last week. What? Uh, how, how much food do we have? And I don't know. We'll go, go see. So they send, you know, Peter sends his little brother Andrew to go find some. Here, this is all I can find. Okay, well, it's not enough. See, Jesus, do something about it. And he says, have them sit down. This will be plenty. So he feeds the 5,000. It's a pretty cool story. Uh, and then you come to uh, chapter 7. And this is where the disciples haven't washed their hands before they eat. And it's more about germs, uh, less about germs than probably a nod to living a holy life and living a clean life. And so Jesus said, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth because what comes out of your mouth comes out of where? Your heart. And he lists some several specifics uh, about that. He said, Isaiah was right about you people. You honor me with your lips, verse a six, but your hearts are far from me. Goes on, goes on, goes on. You have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God and enforcing your traditions. Uh, and then if you look in chapter 7, verse um, 17, after he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. And uh, are you so dull? One of the things that I think makes the Gospels credible is they're written by people who don't look good in the Gospels. You know, they look dense. Kind of like I looked when I was dating in college. I mean, Nita woke up to me before I woke up to her. And, um, you know, bless her heart, she was so patient. But I remember I wanted to say to her, at some point I started to wake up, and I wanted to say to her, I I'd like to get to know you better. And so you would think... That I would go look, I go to the dorm and find her and say, I'd like to get to know you better. That would make sense, right? 
But I called her out of her dorm room. We sat in the lobby of Stevens, and these words came out of my mouth. You know, I think we could be good friends. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm an idiot. Uh, And and that's how the disciples look in the the Gospel of Mark especially. They're, they're, They're like clueless, right? Are you so dull? Can you not still understand? Well, don't forget that, all right? Uh, Now, uh, chapter uh, 7, verse 31. Uh, Jesus left the vicinity. He goes through. He he encounters a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. Any speech therapists in the room? You know the connection between our being able to hear and being able to speak clearly. So he took him aside, away from the crowd, put his fingers in the man's ear. He spit and touched the man's tongue. And he looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said, Ephetha, which means be opened. And at that, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. All right? Don't forget that. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now you come to chapter 8. Uh, now, during those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called the disciples to him and said, I have compassion on these people. They've already been with me three days and have had nothing to eat. Your Bible already gives you the signal, probably with a headline or a subheading that says there's 4,000 people here. Did we just feed 5,000 people two chapters ago? Mm-hmm. And now we're feeding 4,000 people. And, if, you know, I'm like, no problem. Jesus can just do what he did the other day. All right? Uh, but Jesus says, I have compassion on these people because they've already been with me three days and they've nothing to eat. If I send them home, they'll collapse on the way because uh, some of them have come from a long distance. And so the disciples, you'd think the disciples go, I know Jesus. Let's just get a lunch and you do what you did the other day. But they don't say that. They say in verse um, 4, Who are we gonna, what are we going to do? <laughs> We're out here in the middle of nowhere. We're going to find enough bread to feed these people. I mean, they still don't know what to do. <laughs> right? A little dense. Okay, uh, so now go to um, go to chapter eight fourteen. The disciples have forgotten to bring bread. They got in a boat. Uh, the, the verses ahead of that say they're back on the sea. They're in the boat. The disciples have forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. And Jesus says, "Be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod." I told you he knows we're gonna bring. He's mentioning, he's talking about yeast. He knows we only have one loaf of bread. That's not going to be enough. Wasn't it your, aren't you on the list? Isn't it your week to bring the bread? And, you know, they start blaming each other, perhaps. It's because we have no bread. That's why he's saying that, verse 16. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Are your hearts hardened? Look at this. This is very important. Verse 18. Do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets did you have left over? Twelve? Yeah, that was so each of you could take a basket home and not forget about this, right? Do you still not understand? How many? And I I just fed this crowd. How many baskets? Seven. And then he ends this story by verse 21. Do you still not understand? Can you see the connection between their understanding and... And this language of their ears and eyes being opened. In the Gospels, to see and to hear is more than about sight, physical sight, and physical hearing. Kind of a double meaning of of, um, understanding uh, what Jesus is about. And then you come to this story in verse 22. Here it is. Here's the story of the man uh, blind 
that um, Jesus touches twice. So they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, led him outside the village, which is what he did uh, over here uh, with the, um, back in verse um, 27, 33, he took the deaf man away from the crowd, right? So a similar kind of pattern here. Maybe, maybe to uh, maybe Jesus, Mark includes that detail to help us to see the parallel between these stories. Jesus sees this man who's deaf. He puts his fingers in his ear, touches his tongue. Bow! He can, he's cured, right? But now he leads this guy outside the village. He took him by the hand, led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus says, "Do you see anything?" And the man looked up and said, "I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Not a lot of focus, I guess, is what we might say." I see movement, but it's not it's not really clear. Once Jesus put his once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. I wonder why he said that three times. His sight was restored, he saw everything clearly, his eyes were opened. We're not supposed to rush past that. We're supposed to get it. This guy now can see fully. Right? Now what follows that is this. Uh, Jesus said, uh, 8.27, Jesus and disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he said, who do people say that I am? And they go, well, some say you're this, and some say you're this person, and some say you're this person. And he said this. Well, what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, I know, I know. You're the Christ. You're the Christ. And Jesus said, well, don't tell anybody about this right now. And he then begins to teach them about what's going to happen to him. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem, but when I get there, I'm going to be arrested and crucified. And the story goes on to say that Peter does this. He pulls Jesus by the arm and says, come here. And he pulls Jesus over here and says, will you stop talking about that? What, what is it with you guys? You know, you've got this death wish. You're always talking about going to Jerusalem and being killed, which he's going to do several times in this gospel, right? Stop saying that. You're discouraging even, even you know, but, you know, um, who's the son of encouragement? Um, Barnabas. Yeah, Barnabas is getting discouraged even maybe. You know, you're, you're, you're discouraging all these people. Quit talking like that. In fact, it says he, he, uh, he scolds Jesus, right? Um, when Jesus said these things, he spoke plainly, verse 32, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, I've never been rebuked. But I remember maybe Libby getting rebuked. <laughs> Not really. Uh, it happened to me many times at school and other contexts. But uh, rebuke looks like this, if you've forgotten, right? You, you, you squint your eyes down. You kind of wrinkle your forehead and you shake your finger. Young man, you better stop shooting your sister's teddy bear with your BB gun. <laughs> or something like that, right? Don't let this happen again. That's rebuke, right? You recognize it? That's what Peter's doing to Jesus. He's just got through saying, you're the Christ. And now he's saying, Jesus, stop talking like that. Wow. Does Jesus understand? Does Peter understand? Now his words are right. You're the Christ. But when Jesus tells him what, the, what awaits the Christ... Peter doesn't want to have it. Don't, don't want to hear anything about that, right? So you see this misunderstanding take place, okay? So back up to the story of, of 822, uh, where he's touching the person uh, twice. Uh, and let's, let's realize some things, right? 
So sometimes Jesus' miracles, somebody has called them, sometimes they're enacted parables. A parable is something you speak, but an enacted parable is you, you dramatize it, right? Uh, go, for example, with me to... Um, uh, go to Mark 11 with me. I'll show you another uh, instance of this enacted parable. So when you get to uh, when you get to Mark 11, they approached Je uh, Jerusalem, and uh, Jesus sent two disciples ahead to go get a donkey so he could ride on it, right? And uh, he's doing that because uh, one of the prophets, Zechariah, said, "Your king, Israel, Jerusalem, your king will come to you riding on a donkey." It's not as if Jesus is tired. I can't walk another step. Go get me something to ride on. And the disciples go, <laughs> good luck. It's Passover. They're all rented, you know. Um, but sure enough, they're able to find a donkey right where he told them to look. And he gets on it and rides into town. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, all the people say, Hosanna in the highest. Look at verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Who does, who does he stay with when he goes to Bethany? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, right? That's his friends. He goes and stays with them. But this is the only gospel that tells us th uh, this. How much, when does class end? 11.45? Yeah. 11, okay. Uh, I knew it wasn't that late. Uh, so, so this is the only gospel that tells us that Jesus goes to the temple. Now the next day, verse 12, he's going to go into the temple and turn the tables over and run everybody out. What we call the clearing of the temple or the cleansing of the temple. Remember? But Mark's gospel tells us uh, this little tidbit that Jesus goes into the temple the night before. So in other words, it's not as if Jesus is... He walks up the temple steps, goes into the temple, and he sees all this market going on and flies off the handle. What? What? and goes crazy. That's not what's happening here. This is a very premeditated action. Jesus goes, he sees what's happening. He's been there before. He knows what's happening. But but it's late, so he doesn't do anything. Why? Well, you know markets, right? You have flea markets around this area? You ever go to the Saturday flea market? You want to go early? I know near us, if you want a good hunting dog, you better get there early because they go quickly and chickens and stuff like that. And about 11 o'clock, people start packing up and going home because it's too hot, you know? So if you're going to go in a market in a hot climate, you go early. Everybody goes home, right? And I think that might be what's going on here. People are tired, they've gone home, and there's not the crowd that Jesus wants present when he does what he does about clearing the temple. But Mark tells us this is not an act of rage. It's a premeditated Act and my guess is the next morning they're walking up the temple steps and he turns to James and John, James and John and says, "You guys like a big row, don't you? You're gonna love this." Uh, my guess is that morning at breakfast, you know, Martha's cooking again. They're having eggs and bacon. Well, not probably not bacon, but um, you know, they're 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 there. And he says, uh, "Lazarus, you got any you know like leather straps I could have that bridal material you keep in your shed?" Well, yeah, I think I got a few. Uh, could I borrow them? What for? Well, I'd rather not say. But you're probably not going to get them back, you know. But but he gets to the temple steps and he does that very premeditated thing, right? Well, look at this verse uh, twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because why? It wasn't the season for figs. There's no figs because it's not the right season for them to grow. 
And it, what does he do? He curses the tree. Okay? Then he goes to the temple and runs everybody out. Uh, in a sense, cursing that, right? Condemning that. And then verse uh, 20, in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Right? Peter said, wow, look, that fig tree you cursed is withered. And Jesus said, you're surprised, you know. So what we think is happening here is it, sometimes the Gospels do what we call sandwiching. They'll start a story, and then they'll insert another story, and then they'll finish the first story. Kind of like an Oreo, I suppose, right? And so he starts the story about the fig tree, and then he does this thing where he clears the temple, and then he comes back to the fig tree. We think this fig tree is another example of an enacted parable. Jesus is saying to Jerusalem, Jesus is saying to the activity going on in the temple, the same thing he's saying to this tree. Not acceptable, right? Probably talking to the disciples about what he's actually doing in the temple. But that's what we mean by an enacted parable. He does something that sounds like this. And that's what we think is happening in Mark chapter 8 uh, with this story. I know we just have two minutes. Uh, with this story of the man being touched twice. So this blind man in Mac, uh, Mark 8, 22 and following is an enacted parable. The man is slow to receive his sight. Not because Jesus, you know, had a weak miracle day, right? He's slow to receive his sight as a demonstration about the disciples being slow to see, to hear, to get it, right? And all the way through uh, this section of Mark, the disciples don't understand. Don't you have ears to hear and you, you can't hear? Don't you have eyes and you can't see? Are you still so dull? Do you not yet understand? Over and over again, that question is, in this section of Mark. And we think what's happening here is that Jesus is now demonstrating physically the slowness of the disciples to see by demonstrating the partial vision uh, of this man uh, who uh, he has to touch twice there. All right. Well, fun stuff. Gospel of Mark, really fun. Listen, good to be with you guys. And uh, Lord bless you in your journeys. And we'll see you soon.